0: ESPN's Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 documentary film series presents The Greatest Mixtape Ever, the story of how a series of streetball videos set to music in the 90s transformed basketball's place in the culture, defined the lives of the players who starred in them, and changed the game itself forever. Starting June 1, stream on ESPN+, and listen to the companion 30 for 30 podcast, a streetball mixtape exploring the essence of streetball through a collection of legendary stories. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Woj Pod, you get the inside scoop on all the biggest NBA news. As the biggest names in the game, join Adrian Wojnarowski. In-depth conversations, breaking news reaction, and analysis of the biggest events on the NBA calendar. That's the Woj Pod. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about... Well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. So today's episode is a little bit different. We're going to talk about mental health in sports. And I'll warn you that we do touch on sensitive topics, including suicide. If you or anyone you know is struggling, please talk to someone. You can always call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. I've long hoped to get into this topic on the podcast, and unfortunately, the catalyst to finally do the episode was a tragic string of events, all that happened within just a few months of each other this year. Three female college student athletes died by suicide. 22-year-old Katie Meyer, a soccer player for Stanford, 21-year-old Sarah Schultz, a runner at the University of Wisconsin, and 20-year-old Lauren Burnett top softball player at James Madison. While we were seeing this awful news, we're also seeing exposés, like one that revealed longtime allegations of abusive behavior from legendary WNBA player and longtime coach Cynthia Cooper Dyke. Same for longtime Cal swim coach Terry McKeever. So how do we change our ideas about toughness in sport and get past those old thoughts of weakness that you can't acknowledge or admit to? How do we have honest conversations about making kids better while still recognizing their humanity and their sensitivities as we're coaching them? How do we evolve the sports that we love to remain positive spaces for athletes and not stressors that when you combine them with pressure and expectation, social media and more become too much to handle? From Michael Phelps to Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan to Ricky Williams, some really notable pro athletes have spoken up about battles with mental health in the past. But the topic really broke through into mainstream conversation after recent admissions from Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka that they were struggling and it was affecting their ability to compete. I wanted to know more about the stresses on college athletes, about what experts are doing to help those who are struggling, and also to combat the stigmas around mental health. I wanted to know what it feels like for a family to lose a loved one to suicide. So this podcast is split into three parts, each with a different focus. The three guests are Kate Fagan, friend, New York Times bestselling author of What Made Maddie Run and All the Colors Came Out, a former ESPN colleague who's now with Meadowlark Media. Jessica Bartley, Senior Director of Psychological Services, overseeing both mental performance and mental illness for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committees, Team USA athletes. And Molly Dickens, Ph.D., Stress Physiologist, and Co-Founder and Executive Director of And Mother, a nonprofit dedicated to breaking the barriers that limit a woman's choice to pursue and thrive in career and motherhood. Most importantly, also a former teammate of mine on the Cornell track and field team. Let's start with Kate Fagan who helped sort of kickstart my journey to better understanding mental health with her incredible book, What Made Maddie Run? Since writing it, she's continued to speak about the messages of the book, continued to tell Madison Holleran's story, and she's evolved, taking me with her in her views on weakness, strength, and what it means to be an athlete. Here's my conversation with Kate. That's what she said. Kate Fagan, my friend, a New York Times bestselling author of multiple books, including What Made Maddie Run?, and All the Colors Came Out. She's a former ESPN colleague. She's now with Meadowlark Media, and her incredible book, What Made Maddie Run, was part of what got me more engaged in understanding mental health and started really important conversations about mental health and student-athletes. So let's just start with Madison Holleran. Can you tell me the story of how you found out about her and decided to write the book?
1: Yeah. I had, before moving to ESPN, I had been a beat writer for the Philadelphia 76ers. And so I would still follow the newspapers coming out of Philly, including the Philly Daily News. And I remember one morning seeing the headline on the Philadelphia Daily News that said, star student jumps to death over grades. And I felt connected to the story, not just because I had lived in Philly, so I knew like the streets they were talking about in the story, but I also saw that she was a long distance runner And my sister had run cross country and track at Dartmouth and I had played basketball in college. And so I saw that headline and I thought, okay, well, that is clearly not an answer to the question of what happened to this to this young student athlete. And so seeing that headline paired with one of our editors, Sarah at ESPN, had come from Seventeen magazine and, and Madison had taken a pull quote from 17 magazine, put it on her Instagram and put a filter on it. And the gist of it was essentially like, not everyone is as happy as they, they seem to be. And so it was like this Mm -hmm. confluence of me knowing the city, feeling like running and sports or something I can, could connect with, as well as this new question at the time of how had modern technology and social media perhaps impacted her state of mind. And so that was how I, I, I first heard Maddie's story. And, and Madison Holleran was a young student athlete. She was in her freshman year at the University of Pennsylvania, where she was running cross country and track. She had grown up in New Jersey in a suburb of New York City, a town called Allendale. She was a two-time soccer state champion and had gotten into running to balance out soccer. But soccer was her first love. And... She was recruited mostly for soccer, and then she started posting these really fast times in the 800 during her senior year, and the Ivy League started recruiting her just for track, and so she reevaluated her decision and changed her mind. She was going to go to Lehigh for soccer, ended up going to run at UPenn, and it was that transition to college that really sparked a shift in her own mental health as well as the struggles of being a student athlete, the two days on the running side, as well as the very high pressure environment of an of an Ivy League and a pre-professional Ivy League in Penn as compared to other schools she could have landed on. And so she she was just in the second semester of her freshman year in college when she died by suicide and just diving into it. I really got to know her parents at the time, her good friends who have now all graduated from college, the community of Allendale and, and how this rocked them. And at the time, it felt like this very specific to a time period, the, these questions of what's going on, why and it, why student athletes are, are, and our young people in general are struggling more than ever with anxiety and, and depression. It's still no answers, but it felt at the time that we were just starting to broach the subject.
0: Yeah, I listened to an interview you did in 2017. And the final question from the interviewer was, do you think you'll start to do some more stories on this and that we'll start to hear more about mental health and athletes? And it's kind of wild to think about now, not only because of the way the pandemic has sort of really revved up our conversations around socialization and mental health and and athletics, but um, just because it has been this inevitable march toward the necessity of the conversation and preventative conversation instead of just reactive as we look across the landscape of not just college athletes but college students in general becoming increasingly less happy. And that's one of the things that fascinated me about this story was the understanding of what we picture the collegiate experience to be, particularly for someone like Madison who was stereotypically beautiful came from a loving family, was smart, athletic, uh, had lots of friends, um, quote unquote, had it all. And Mm -hmm. how it's so much easier for us to digest and move past the troubled person um, who, who has always struggled or there's something, there's one moment or thing that happens that everything pivots and turns on. And there really wasn't that for Madison. It was a slow dissolving into an unhappiness that she just didn't feel like she could share with very many people.
1: Yeah, the the thing about Maddie's story that really is it was difficult to digest at the outset and continues to represent for me this uh, this struggle that we face when we look at our students or student athletes, I just say young people, um, is that it really shifted the concept in our own minds about what we were looking for, because Everyone who I talked to, especially at her high school in Northern Highlands, and a lot of the people at Penn, they kept reiterating to me that like, this was quote unquote, somebody you thought you didn't have to worry about. Mm. And so it really flagged in my mind that most of the time when we hear about a young person on whatever, like part part under the umbrella of struggling, whether like really deeply with like a, a depression and something genetic or just with it, with a more everyday anxiety where their just everyday experience is being compromised. We tended to before look for what very obvious things, right? Somebody that appeared outwardly, un, you know, unhappy and maybe struggling to meet goals and all of these different ideas that we might've had. And Maddie's story really shattered that. I'm not saying it was the first one, but it was the first one that I paid attention to in the sports world where. She seemed to be still excelling at everything right. inside her own mind. You know, there was that dysmorphia of I'm not doing as well. But if you were just looking from the outside, as you as you said, Sarah, you like, well, she was very successful in her first semester in cross country, even though in her own mind, it wasn't going as well. She was still succeeding academically. So it was like this. She represented this first idea of, oh, these young student athletes or young students who appear to be kicking ass at everything. And they have this idea of perfection. If if you, as you look at them, like these are student athletes, we need to really be paying attention to. And I think we've seen that borne out over the last five to six years. And even more recently, because so many of these student athletes at first glance, you're like, Oh, they have everything. That's kind of Mm -hmm. the idea is like, Oh, they have everything.
0: Yeah, there's been a meme I've seen going around much more in the last year or two. And I, I won't remember the exact wording, but it's something like ask your happy friends if they're OK or something like that, mm-hmm. Um that it's not just the folks who are outwardly expressing distress. And one of the fascinating things about this book is that first you wrote a piece for ESPN, the magazine, and It was both about Maddie and also about the shared experience we all have with putting up on our social media a representation that's incomplete. We don't put up the sad moments and the struggles. We tend to put this beautiful glaze on everything. That piece alone was super powerful and and the digital uh, version that encouraged others to post photos from social and then really say what was going on behind the scenes instead of letting it live um, sort of in this varnished space. Um, That was super powerful. But after that, you knew there was more to tell. And Madison's family actually let you have her computer and I think phone and all this access to what was going on. And the metadata told you things about how many times she would filter photos, you know, emails and and conversations she was having that that most people didn't get to see. And I wonder where that research took you from the person that you thought she was at the beginning or the story you thought you were going to tell to where you ended up.
1: What really shifted for me in getting her, her computer, which had her iMessages, and it had all of her, obviously, like the cloud, it had her phone data as well as documents and whatever she was working on on her MacBook. It, uh, more than what shifted for me about Maddie and the way I thought of her and the way I thought of, of those, that year in college trying to understand what happened what shifted for me was seeing the sickness of how she was interacting and and the priority that her social digital interactions were taking and so a lot of that came in the form of looking at her i messages and realizing that it wasn't so much exactly what she was saying in the text messages because we all to, even when we're going through tough periods we' we're, we're usually not one hundred percent candid across the board with what's happening. so it wasn't what she was saying, but it was the it was actually looking at how she was using emojis of all things because I started to realize that almost every text she sent about this topic she would include emojis. So then I had to start asking myself, well, what purpose are they serving, and how can you use emojis? digitally and again they, they're not in real life so what are they doing for you digitally that can't be captured when you're in person and then right. looking at having access to something like I was very I was surprised I had access to this but I remember opening up her uh, her photo editing app and I could see all these iterations of her last few photos and I could see the different versions of the photo she took. And then I could see how many times she filtered it and like the different versions of it before she landed on the one. And so it was less to me about like one I Yes. I was thinking to myself, wow. Okay. There's there are, again, there is some sort of dysmorphia happening here that she is focusing on this instead of the, the big problem at the time, which was like, she was just hours left to live because she was struggling so deeply and so focused on the outward representation of what her life would look like to people. And so I I still don't have an exact answer about what that means other than to point out this information to people, like, look at these emojis, look at this filtering. We have to pay attention to that stuff because the very broad stroke of what it's telling me is that if Maddie in this intense situation is focused on that how much are our kids in, maybe not at that, at that apex of a moment, but they're in their everyday life, and if they're focusing on that over their mental health and their well-being. what where is that going to leave them across months and months and building up to years and years?
0: Yeah, I think one of the best parts of the book is that you balance out the storytelling about Madison and her specific, case with larger conversations about mental health. And because of the relative young, uh, I guess, the relative newness of social media, there's still so much work yet to be done in terms of understanding its effect on people. But you get into the research that has been done on uh, the effects on athletes. And it's impossible, I think, for most of us to imagine that there isn't a, a real line to be drawn between our lives online and offline and the struggles of college aged kids. Now there's more to it. The world is changing in in many ways and social media isn't the only one. But um, one of the things that I talk about a lot that keeps coming back to me is research that you mentioned in your book. And it's a passage from Mind Change. That says teenagers who spoke with their parents over the phone or in person released similar amounts of oxytocin, an indication of bonding and well-being, and showed similar low levels of cortisol, which is a marker of stress, indicative of a reduction in stress. In comparison, those who instant messaged their parents released no oxytocin and had salivary cortisol levels as high as those who did not interact with their parents at all. Thus, while the younger generation may favor non-oral modes of communication, when it comes to providing emotional support, messaging appears comparable to not speaking with anyone at all. Mm -hmm. That blew my mind. Yeah. Because of course you can, you could have your heart broken by a text (laughs) or a post-it note as they did on, on sex in the city, right? You can have (laughs) so many things conveyed to you and told to you and expressed to you across text messaging, instant messenger, um, and obviously, eventually, it makes its way to your brain and your and your nervous system and everything else. But the idea that certain parts of your brain would not be affected without that oral component or face to face or any sort of human component um, that opens the door to so many other. Uh, tentacles of of discovery, which obviously become even more important when it comes to something like COVID and the pandemic and, and staying at home and, and being quarantined and how that affects people's mental health. Um, that kind of research, has that sort of kind of continued for you since you wrote, wrote the book, trying to better understand what we know about this and how, it, how it's affecting young people today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't help but stay tied to this story be- because- when I first set out to report it, I naively felt like I would find the answer. Like, like we all tend to think, whether you're a journalist or not a journalist, even if you just like Maddie's friends when they first got back, you know, over winter break and when they first heard the news, they all thought, okay, I'm going to find out exactly what happened, right? As if there's this missing piece. And so I felt that way when I first started reporting the story. And even though your brain... I try to override and tell my brain I'm never going to, quote, unquote, solve this. I can't help but continue to feel like I have to gather research and and continue paying attention to this story because I want all of the pieces. I know I'm never going to get all of the pieces, but I can't help but say, like, okay, whatever we knew in 2017 and and that study you mentioned, it, it was so crucial to how Maddie was behaving because even though... You, your common sense tells you text messages are not as rewarding as hearing someone's voice. You probably still think, okay, but they're somewhat helpful, right? If I, if I have enough of them, it will equal having a phone call. If I'm connected to a bunch of people digitally, I'm getting little micro doses. So when you learn that like you're actually getting nothing at all and you realize that's how Maddie was communicating, you're, it's a small piece of the puzzle to how her story ended the way it did. And so I have tried you know, as, as new books come out, as new research comes out, I, I try to pay attention to it. Although there's been, and I try, and I keep reporting Maddie's story. Like when I meet up with her family, I, they'll tell me stories of her as a kid that still matter to me, or that help shed some new light on the, the part of her personality and who she is that, that was one piece of the eventual outcome. So I, there will never be an answer but i do try i do think of this as like a lifelong pursuit
0: and you've gone to schools and and done speaking engagements about the book yes
1: yes and most often they're athletic departments because you know the, there's that that variable we haven't even touched yet of how the nca and being a student athlete can can affect well-being but i and so face-to-face conversation with with kids who see themselves in maddie and they're here to tell you and, and still alive to say like, that was that is also mapped so perfectly onto my experience. And they wanna talk through the different parts of it, parts of Maddie's story that they like deeply resonate with.
0: In What Made Maddie Run, you actually publish a sort of back and forth with a young person who has struggled with depression and suicidal ideologies, has in fact attempted suicide in the past, uh, Megan Armstrong, who you both, you and I met through social media Uh, Mm a journalism student at the University of Missouri when we both met her and have remained in touch with her. And I have to say that trying to help her through struggles without myself dealing with depression and truly understanding it and then reading your book is the reason that I got more interested in this because I'm fascinated in general by our brains and human interaction and habit changing and neuroplasticity and like they all kind of end up coming together. But the space that is a mystery to me is depression and anxiety and things like that, that I am, I always quote you that you said when you wrote this book, you didn't realize until you started writing it, what a gift it was to have mental health. Um, and I completely agree with you. And I also, you said in an interview that you used to find weakness sort of revolting (laughs) and that's such an athlete thing. It's the same for me. And we, I took such great pride in things that I had zero to do with. I had zero control over my brain health. I am so grateful for it, but the things I used to feel about those who struggled were never without empathy, but they were flippant. Like, Oh, you could work your way through that. Or you can't let yourself get too down. Or, you know, here's all, you know, just think positive thoughts, you know, like bullshit like that, that you really believe because you yourself can't possibly understand uh, what a different experience it is to live with constant anxiety or depression. And, um, I imagine obviously the book has taken you on speaking tours, has led you to interest in this, took you to The Daily Show, which was one of the cool friend moments of all time. I'm like, oh my gosh, talking to Trevor Noah. Um, but also, how has it changed your life outside of writing or work as just a human being moving through the world and interacting with other human beings?
1: Yeah, I wonder if this is true for you too, Sarah, as it's something you've become increasingly interested in. I had a wall up between me and friends that I didn't even know existed because I probably was casually saying things. Some of the things like you just mentioned were, you know, an aside about somebody who, you know, didn't finish something or, or, um, that, that kind of like so-and-so is always down. Like they just need to figure it out. I mean, the kind of things it almost reminded me, like growing up, knowing I was gay and hearing people say things, not knowing that I would just completely internalize them. I think I was that person for a very long time before mm. working on this story. And so the ramifications for me in, in working on it outside of anything professional have, have been that like there are numerous friends in my life now who I, I thought I was close with, and but they'd never told me that they were someone who, you know, they wake up in the morning and they don't want to get out of bed. And me working on this book and changing how I thought about how the brain worked and what that meant about someone whose brain worked differently than me, as opposed to it being uh, it being like a a pejorative about who they must be character wise. Right. All of that changed for me. And now I there's numerous friendships where I feel eminently closer to them and and to my own mental health. Because right. like anything, it's like until you name it, until you understand the layers of it. I, I definitely am with you in that. I've, I don't think I've ever dealt with like a deep depression, but I certainly now understand the fluctuations of my internal life way better than I ever did before.
0: Completely agree. It's funny. I was messaging mild name drop, but um, with Abby and Glennon, uh, Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle about their podcast, and I just wish so many more people would listen to it doesn't necessarily have to be that one that's just the one i listened to but there's such an intentionality of introspection and communication and the human experience that i think could open up so many people to opportunities for greater happiness and understanding that if you move through the world and and your life and the spaces in front of you without it it's really easy to not even realize that you're missing this incredible depth of of understanding and for yourself and others. And I think, what? you know, especially in the sports world as athletes, you know, there's like oh pain is just weakness, leaving the body, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's like we all have the, the shirts and the posters and the vibes. And um I think that's why it's so stark in the world of sports, this, this, this conversation, because there are those who are still so antiquated in their belief about what it is to be great. And mm-hmm. there are probably a lot of athletes that are, almost the same in terms of hard work and body type and genetics. And one is just blessed with the ability to move past failure or to seek out greatness without it crushing them compared to another. And that's a And it, and it might not even be something they can do anything about. And so when we talk about like a Ben Simmons or a Naomi Osaka or a Kevin love or a DeMar DeRozan or any of the folks who have come forward, um, there's a delicacy in talking about it because it, it's it's very difficult to know um, if you can really what what you can do and how much can be done and what is is ultimately out of your control because of the very nature of your brain.
1: Yeah, and and I often think about how you know you and I talking right now about the ways in which learning about this stuff, opening your mind about. In, as as people as athletes who came up in the sports world, I often think about the young athletes themselves, like Maddie, who didn't have the time, perhaps didn't have the it, the introspection or the people in their life to jumpstart it. Where you even think these things about them yourself? Like I I often thought about myself if I didn't finish a run or something that I was weak, and so. I often think about how these, how young these athletes are who are struggling right now. Mm -hmm. And, or even the ones who have taken their own lives and how I can't even imagine the self-talk that they have for themselves growing up in the sports world and being unable to like get to this place of like really understanding the nuanced layers and how a lot of that feeling, you know, and here I'm projecting a little bit, like, that feeling of how they might be feeling about themselves at that time is a is a creation of the sports world right and and there are pieces of it that you can take to harness and make you you stronger and there are pieces that you can rightfully call out as bullshit if they don't work for you and and so i think a lot about like how lucky i am to be older and be able to move through and learn new things and then how terribly sad it feels to me looking in people looking at young kids who might not have ever ever been able to get through to that place. Agreed agreed and 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 how
0: difficult it is to consider those who are no longer here who if they had somehow had the right person or resources or moment or interruption or change, Um, it might've ended differently Um, from friends we all have to athletes we've read about. um, And yeah, and that's why the conversation's so important, particularly after the pandemic disrupted so much and we're still trying to unravel uh, um, the things that have happened over the last couple of years and how they've affected people and how they're going to affect our very young people Mm -hmm. um, where I can't imagine what it is for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year-olds who have spent the last couple years in a constant state of sort of anxiety and the people around them in those spaces. Um, But the conversation's important. Your book is super important. And I'm so glad that it's still, I hear about it all the time. People still say they're, they're reading it or presenting it to classes or talking about it. Um, And so congrats to you on an incredible job and, and still speaking about this in a way that's super helpful to other people.
1: Well, thanks, Sarah, and thanks for for championing the topic, because it's ever more relevant.
0: We'll get right back to the interview, but first,
2: you're going to learn today.
0: The word of the week, appropriately, is stigma. Many of you probably know what it means, a mark of shame or discredit, a mark of disgrace associated with a particular circumstance, quality, or person, or a set of negative and often unfair beliefs that a society or group of people have about something. But maybe you don't know the source of the word. So it's from the Latin, quote, mark made on skin by burning with hot iron. So quite literally a brand. It ultimately comes from the Greek staisine, meaning to tattoo. So that figurative meaning of a mark of disgrace is from the 1610s. Stigmas, meaning uh, in a religious sense, marks resembling the wounds on the body of Christ appearing on the bodies of the devout is from the 1630s. So earliest usage was really directly related to the word's origin, so a scar left by a hot iron, a brand. But in modern use, it is about that set of negative and uh, unfair beliefs, Uh, the stigmas associated with mental illness, the stigmas associated with poverty, of um, other things that are then held against a group of people or a person. So in a sentence... The stigma attached to mental illness has made it hard to publicly promote mental health resources to those who need them most. But celebrities and sports stars publicly talking about their struggles can help change that. Now let's get back to the interview. So Kate Fagan helped put a face and a specific story to the struggles. Now let's look at the bigger picture through the lens of a clinical expert. Jessica Bartley earned a bachelor's degree in government and sociology and a master's in social work from the University of Texas at Austin, got another master's in sport and performance psychology and a doctorate in clinical psychology with an emphasis in sport and performance psychology and behavioral therapy at the University of Denver. She worked as a clinical psychologist at UNC Chapel Hill, then spent nearly eight years at University of Denver as a clinical assistant professor in the sport and performance psychology program, a behavioral health consultant, and a staff psychologist. She's a licensed psychologist and a licensed clinical social worker and a certified mental performance consultant with the Association for Applied Sport Psychology, now the Senior Director of Psychological Services for the USOPC, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, overseeing mental performance and mental illness, developing and implementing mental health services and programming for Team USA. It's a mouthful because she's impressive. And here's my conversation with her.
2: That's what she said.
0: I've been so looking forward to this conversation because as we're finally engaging with the issue of mental health and athletics, there are so many people talking, but I'm not sure how many of them are qualified. And I know that this person is very qualified to speak on these issues and will help us understand and better engage in in, uh, helping um, make it more widespread, the the conversation on mental performance and mental illness. So let's start with that. There is a big difference uh, between Someone suffering from mental illness and someone who's having mental health or mental performance issues.
3: That Mm -hmm. seems like the core to what you need to start to figure out when you're working with athletes. For sure. I think that that's been really helpful to start to think about it as far as mental performance and mental health and mental illness actually being on a spectrum. And so at one end of the spectrum, you have someone who might be diagnosed with a mental illness. And I think it's really important to, to be able to provide them with the most appropriate resources. And then I think somewhere in the middle, there's this discussion about mental health. And so to realize that everyone has mental health, we all kind of have ups and downs. And I think it's really important to, to know that um, you could also get an, a provider, an appropriate provider for that be it a counselor or um, psychologist or a therapist. And then we have mental performance on the other end of the spectrum. And so that's kind of taking someone from good to great. And that's an executive coach or a sports psychology provider or a life coach. And there's a number of different folks who can provide services in that area as well. Um, one of the ways I like to think about it best is everyone has kind of this baseline that they function mm-hmm. at. And so for mental performance and somebody that's trying to, you know, actually um, improve their performance, I would say that that's going to be going um, from baseline to above. And then somebody who's struggling with mental health or maybe mental illness, they've kind of fallen below their baseline. And so they may need a therapist, a counselor, a, a psychologist, and that would be a little bit of somebody different that might be addressing those concerns with them.
0: It's such a simple way to think about it. And it's so useful because we all understand that physically our baseline is an everyday. We feel fine. A physically, yep. nothing is in pain. We're not limping. We're we're not sick with an illness. We're just fine. And then we go from there and we have not been able to have those conversations about our mental wellness because of stigmas and especially in sport, this idea of weakness being the enemy that admitting weakness, whether that's, I get nervous at the end of games or before games, or whether that's I'm struggling with stuff outside of sport and I'm bringing it to my sports. All of that is, is a relevant conversation, a necessary conversation to have, but we seem not to do that in the same way we're willing to do that physically. The last couple of years that's changed. And, and what have you seen in terms of athlete performance as a result
3: of being able to openly discuss mental performance? You know, I think that it's one last thing for athletes to worry about is—is is this is a part of the way that a lot of our elite athletes have been um, training for a long time—is physically and mentally. I mean, if you ask any athlete what percentage of your performance is mental, you get really, really high percentages. And and so I think now that athletes are talking about it, talking about how much time they put into the mental space, it's really becoming quite a topic of conversation and, and I hope a lot more normalized. And, and for me, I think the fact that we haven't been talking about it um, is probably a detriment to performance. And so talking about it openly is going to improve performance. It's going to push athletes and to get them the resources. And I think if you think about it physically, if an athlete has an injury, we address that injury. And so if an athlete has something come up mentally, we have incredible tools to be able to address those pieces mentally. And I think that's what's really, really important is to understand that there's incredible tools for that. And it's also going to impact their performance in an incredible way.
0: I want to talk about the recent spate of suicides across multiple female collegiate athletes that have sort of broken news. And, you know, sometimes I worry about being prisoner of the moment. And I understand that in this current moment in time, we are now privy to the very worst tragedies of the world, right? It used to be that mm-hmm. we would have our neighborhood paper or our local news, but now we're able to, because of social media, take in these awful tragedies across so many different um, neighborhoods and cities and states. And I wonder, is that abnormal? And is that something you're reacting to as as trying to understand the moment that caused and created Um, those three specific deaths? Or is it that we've had unfortunate deaths by suicide over the course of history and
3: we just aren't usually seeing and hearing about them? You know, I really like to think of it as like a both and. Like, I think um, there's been a number of things that we've been addressing at the USOPC, whether it's abuse, whether it's um, mental health, whether it's just safety, security, um, financial burdens. These athletes have actually been managing them for quite some time. I think it just hasn't been in the spotlight, in the media, um, quite so um, relevant and important in society. And I think there's a, a global conversation going on around mental health. So you work with elite athletes
0: and part of the way that you get to become elite is a drive to be perfect, a drive to continue to get better. It makes you so good at sports, but it really makes it tough if you're a perfectionist to cope with mistakes or cope with failure. So what have you found when you're working with these super high level athletes in terms of balancing that idea of weakness is bad with needing help and talking about things to get help?
3: Well, I think it's actually reconceptualizing it a bit. I, I, was an incredibly driven athlete. And I'm actually probably a highly anxious person who just (laughs) understands how to embrace like that anxiety. And it often comes with over preparation. It comes with being really scheduled. And I think then I've learned a lot of things around flexibility and patience that kind of add to what I feel like is kind of who I am and who I am naturally. And so I think what we're often doing with athletes is understanding like what makes you, you, what makes you um, the athlete that you are as driven as you are and understanding that a lot of that is what makes them the incredible athlete they are. But how do we balance that with some of the other pieces? And when is it most appropriate? When do you really need to put that into your sport and how does that translate to life? And so we're doing a lot of work with with athletes, you know, how do you transition out of life or how do you be outside of sport? And I think that's what we've taken a lot of our time to focus on now is just being able to, to think about all of our athletes as, as human beings and whole people.
0: Yeah. What are some of the programs that the US OPC offers to help athletes that are struggling with mental health, mental performance?
3: You know, I think we actually started from um, crisis. And so when we started to build things out about a year and a half ago in the mental health space specifically... Uh, we created a crisis hotline and so we have a team USA mental health support line that athletes can call 24/7. Um, there's always a licensed mental health provider on the other end of the phone and they can further connect athletes to resources And so we worked backwards from um, you know something's really really bad something's really not right um, to then okay what are some of the other resources? We started creating emergency action plans for competitions how do we want to manage? um athletes who are struggling and had very specific protocols and we had athlete input on what those protocols are and then we just got into um you know what are the services that athlete might might need and so we have individual therapy, group therapy, um we have programming around particular topics. So we had incredibly successful programming for athletes who didn't qualify for Tokyo. So mm. after um after having a year postponement um athletes didn't make it it was crushing for a lot yeah. of these athletes who had spent not only 4 years but now 5 years training for this particular event and so we had all the athletes coming together and coming together around a shared topic and i think that was incredibly powerful to have them just be able to talk to each other and be in the same spot same space maybe different emotions um, but that was really helpful. So the more that we're getting athletes together in groups, and, and then we're also doing groups around transition out of sport. And then we're just now getting into the wellness space. And so we have some new resources with better up which I think is really helpful. Um, it's an incredible platform and we're also looking at prevention now, and then we'll get into more of that mental performance. And so we've got individual and group sessions, there's mindfulness and meditation. So we're really trying to run the gamut of just how do we integrate psychological resources into everyday life, whether an athlete's struggling or just trying to get 1% better.
0: I was reading about your work, um, at the Olympics and even before Simone Biles really brought everything to the biggest stage possible, um, you told uh, an interviewer that you got about 10 requests a day during the Tokyo games to, to recognize and support mental health needs of athletes and that most of the calls to you didn't come directly from them, but from a tip from someone around them who told you about the situation. That's really interesting to me because when you talk about preventative health in terms of mental health, everybody needs to be educated to recognize the signs, to have conversations, to be supportive in, in ways that are helpful, um, to then help that person get get the needed resources from someone like you.
3: For sure. And I think, you know, whether it was a coach, an administrator, a teammate, that's one of the big initiatives that we've really tried to take on as well as education. And so we've been providing what we kind of call Mental Health 101. So they're just one hour sessions, um, 45 minutes of content and 15 minutes of Q&A around just mental health and what is mental health and what is mental illness, what is mental performance. And so trying to educate those, what we call the entourage. And so the IOC, the international Olympic committee is, has dubbed that term, the entourage is anybody that could be supporting the athlete. And so we've really targeted the entourage to be able to provide them education. And so we want them to know a little bit about mental health, mental wellness, mental performance, and, what do we do if we identify that someone's struggling? And so we're relying really heavily on the entourages because the way that we've coached them is you're going to be the one that might notice something's different. And as I mentioned, you know, a lot of times we have a baseline. We understand how what normal functioning looks like, sounds like, feels like. And so you're starting to notice like, hey, they're, they're kind of late to practice a lot now, or, or they're not Quite up to, to where they were performing at the last competition. Those are kind of the signals where we should start asking questions and start thinking about what resources might be best for this particular person.
0: You know, Simone Biles, obviously not the first to have these experiences. Plenty of high profile, profile athletes have, have talked about issues of depression or other mental health issues, but she touched a nerve, I think, in the sense that It's great that we're finally talking about this on a broader scale and and on more media platforms that also offers up a platform and a microphone to people who aren't educated about this stuff. What was your reaction to the many, many different voices who had something to say and chimed in about Simone?
3: You know, I think um, for me, it's been one of those things that I really have appreciated mental health being in the spotlight and then being able to provide education as much as we can to those who are already educated or those who aren't. And I think that there will always be haters, if you will, there will always be someone who has something to say. And so those are some other things we work with the athletes around is, um, you know, how do you respond to that? How do you um, want to present yourself in the media? How do you want to perform? And so I think we, often work with athletes, coaches, again, the entire entourage around how to respond. Um, But I think the more we can talk about mental health and the more education we can get out there, the better.
0: Tell me about 988. This is something I had not heard about at all until I heard you talking about it in another interview. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm amazed that it's, is it in place already? How do I not know about this?
3: Yeah, so 988 is a number um, that is starting to kind of be an adjunct to 911. And so 988 is, is, is something that across the country will start to come into play in different states at different pieces as we stand up the resources around mental health. So 988 is going to be a number you could call. Um, to request mental health support. And so if you know someone is struggling with mental health, it is a number that um, you could call and that would bring out often a police officer with training in mental health or actually a mental health provider. We've used it quite a bit in Colorado, and it's been wonderful because then you're not engaging the 911 services. It's a totally different kind of response. And so you'll start to get notifications in different areas of the country. For us, I got a text message in Colorado and said, hey, this is up and running. Um, call 998- 988 for any of those mental health resources that you need to be connected to in your area. And we've actually yeah. been able to use that. That
0: seems like an incredibly important moment in our country, if we can Mm -hmm. start to distinguish between people who need the aid of an ambulance or police or a Mm -hmm. mental health professional, because sometimes when the wrong thing shows up to a situation, really tragic things can happen if someone isn't capable of dealing with it. Um, Which brings me to, I guess, something else. There are so many different ways that people want to or are willing to receive care when it comes to mental health and are willing to take that first step or maybe a bigger step than they've been previously willing to. How have you learned that in terms of resources that are provided um, about the the variety of ways that you need to be able to meet people in the middle?
3: You know, I think that we've been very intentional on how we wanted to provide resources. So we had these crisis resources that we've stood up We knew individual therapy, group therapy, uh, programming, a webinar, just some psychoeducation. Um, We needed to have what we call a suite of resources, and that's been very, very important. Some of the other ways we've thought about it is we have a lot of these embedded at the USOPC. We also have confidential resources in local communities. So we created a registry and currently has around 170 mental health providers that we have interviewed, we've vetted. And the athletes can actually go connect with those providers on their own. Um, We're really proud at the USOPC that our health insurance that covers our athletes, it covers most of Team USA athletes, covers mental health 100% in network and out of network. And so they can actually go seek out those providers and we would never know. And so we tried to create these resources that provided some anonymity um, some confidentiality from the USOPC and from their national governing body, whether that's, you know, whatever sport it might be, um, because we understand this is still stigmatized. So while we're trying to destigmatize, In the same breath, we understand this is stigmatized and have confidential resources that we're trying to push out as well. And I think that's been very important to have a number of different resources. Um, We've also had virtual resources with e-home teletherapy. So there's just a plethora of resources that we've tried to think about what would be a barrier to an athlete not getting resources and are trying to come up with those solutions as quickly as we can.
0: Technology, super helpful in that, particularly during the pandemic, the ability to consult with someone online if necessary. But I wonder also how much technology has contributed to mental health crises in this country. The the research is relatively new. Is that a big part of your work now in terms of getting out ahead and being preventative is to understand the correlations between social media, whether that's just bullying or FOMO or extreme cases of, you know comparing ourselves, uh, that results in some of the worst cases here?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that that definitely our athletes are in the spotlight. It's definitely something that we're tracking. Um, and so I think that we're trying to understand the impact of social media. And as you mentioned, it's new, like we don't really still understand the impact that it could be having, but we know some basics that a lot of times what you see on the internet is something that's, um, really pretty, really nice, and not the whole story. What you also know is there's a number of times that um, people will say something on the internet, they're never going to say to your face. And so Mm -hmm. it's also um, much more universal. And so you've got people commenting from all over the world um, on a picture, on a post, on a story. And so I think it's really important to um, remember that and kind of ground a lot of the athletes, even the coaches and any one in the entourage in that um, and just provide some education. Cause at this point, you know, we know some things, but we don't know all the things about how this is truly impacting mental health. Um,
0: you know, I wonder too how important it is to engage coaches and staff in the changing knowledge and education around this, because in addition to the very tragic stories of athletes who have died by suicide, there've also been a lot more stories about coaches engaging in abusive behaviors and creating mental health crises um, with their athletes. I assume that so much of your work is focused around athletes who come to you for help, but uh, I'm certain coaches are very much involved in, in the education that you're trying
3: to do. Absolutely. And so we've partnered a lot with our coaching education programming. Um, We've really designed some units for coaches as far as mental health. In my experience, a lot of coaches want to understand mental health, they often avoid it because they don't understand or they don't want to ask a question because they don't know what to do if they get a particular answer. And so Mm. what we've been really focused on is This is how you ask the question. This is how you ask about suicide. This is how you ask about depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and giving them some tools and saying, if the answer is yes, if it says I'm struggling with an eating disorder, here are the resources. And that's been kind of our two-pronged approach is coaching the coaches around noticing these behaviors, noticing that something is out of the ordinary and being able to equip them with the resources, whether those resources are at the USOPC or they're simply national resources that are available to um, a youth athlete per se.
0: So we were having this conversation on a TV show that I'm around the horn. We were talking about a specific player, Ben Sibbins. And he seems to draw the ire of people because as much as some are willing to acknowledge that he may be struggling, they also are very critical of how that has manifested across the teams that he's been on and his unavailability or his desire to play is to come into a question. And I wonder how much you think mental performance, something that we take for granted, which might be like what we call the clutch gene or the ability to play under great stress, how much of that is actually a decision and how much of that is something that is just as con- in- con- is, is just as much not up to us as how long our legs are or how high we can jump. We can work at it. We could do our best, but we're all capped at a certain point. Because I know that I personally have taken a lot of credit over my life for great mental health. And only recently did I realize that I'm just incredibly lucky, incredibly yeah. lucky. That's not me. That's something that happened. And I got really genetically lucky to be a, a mentally healthy person most of the time is the same thing for someone who deals with great pressure in stressful situations or struggles the way that maybe Ben Simmons does.
3: Yeah. I mean, in, um, in our world with mental health and mental performance, I often use this model called biopsychosocial because it's such a mix of biological, psychological, and social influences that are going to create issues with mental health and, I think that it's really important. You know, I'm, I'm did a fellowship in eating disorders. And I think that some of what we're learning about eating disorders is there are some of us that are predisposed to disordered eating, eating disorders, and it's almost like a light switch. And Mm. so you need the psychological social influences to turn that light switch on and really kind of have someone slide into disordered eating, eating disorders. So someone could have the same social, psychological influences as the person sitting next to them. And because they have a different genetic makeup, they will not necessarily turn to eating disorders as far as coping or the the kind of behaviors that they use. And so it's really important to think of that combination of things, that some of us are more predisposed to eating disorders, to alcohol issues, to um, depression and anxiety. So it is an incredible combination. And I've often thought it really helpful to think of this as a light switch, um, that you have these psychological, sociological um, kind of influences that are actually what turns that light switch on and Mm. off. Um, So it's really helpful to think of that. And I think for me, what's been most reassuring when thinking of that light switch is we know that light switches can turn off. And so again, we can actually fight that biology. And that's how I was also taught as far as eating disorders as well, is you have tools that can actually overcome this genetic predisposition at times. And that therapy, or it could be medication, and it could be just tools and skills that you're using, um, turns that light switch back off. And so that's where we think of all of these more on a spectrum, instead Mm -hmm. of you have this diagnosis you're not, you're gonna be mentally ill or not. Um, I think that it's really important to think of things to be a little bit more complex than that.
0: Yeah, that's such a fantastic answer, because that's what we were trying to figure out. Is it, is it just that in the end, instead of criticizing someone for that, we may arrive at a place where we say, just like the person who's chronically injured and, mm, wow, what potential they had, but they just that one knee never mm-hmm. is good enough to keep them in play long enough that maybe there are some people who without being critical, we accept and acknowledge that their psychological and mental health makeup is maybe not suited to the life of an elite professional athlete. And that's okay, but we have to learn how to talk about mental health in a way that isn't, and and that's the complication of it, is how are we empathetic while at the same time having realistic expectations? Well,
3: and I would actually say the word I really like is how can we be curious? Like, what is that makeup? What What do you think that's about? And that's really mm. helped me to have a lot of empathy with these athletes. But the curiosity is like, that is so interesting that there could be the similar circumstances for two people and they end up in completely different places. And that has such a piece of biology and genetics, um, embedded in it that I I just find it really fascinating to think about that with the lens of curiosity.
0: So um, I'm going to wrap this up on and I could talk to you forever, but, um, Someone, as someone who's just sort of in the last couple of years gotten really into mental health discussions and neuroplasticity and the the choices that we make and the things we can do to increase our happiness and all of that, I don't have a ton of resources, but I tend to go to the same ones. And weirdly, one is a cartoon. Uh, from a website called Hyperbole and a Half. And there's one specific one called Depression Part Two. And in working with someone I was trying to mentor who suffered from suicidal ideologies and depression, I was just looking for anything that could help me better feel it instead of reading about it. And that particular, for whatever reason, um, every time I've gone back, it it gives me that feeling of sort of emptiness as opposed to sadness that she would always tell me is what she felt more often than sad was empty. And um, I wonder if there are a couple of resources that you might recommend or that you tend to go to first when people come to you and want to better engage with their own mental health.
3: Well, I think the first resource we've really tried to build out is the Team USA website. And so everything we've designed for athletes is actually public facing. And so if you go to teamusa.org backslash mental health, we've actually highlighted a number of those resources. And so we often are looking to Mental Health America, NAMI, Uh, the Jed Foundation, there's a number of things going on with the NCAA, the NBA, the NFL. And so we've highlighted a number of those resources. And um, it's probably important to mention that we actually gathered a task force that have Mm. all of those different um, organizations represented. And that's how we really pulled together most of our resources. And, And to even circle back further, um, that's who actually decided to to hire me, or that a standalone mental health program within the USOPC needed to be created. Was this incredible task force we had that was created um, in February of 2020? So long before COVID, long before things have gotten to the point where they were now. And so, our website's incredible and also highlights a lot of those incredible resources. The registry is also there, so if you're looking for any of those providers who our athletes use their names are also there. Uh, The e-home, our teletherapy, all of the resources are there and are available not only to our athletes, but to the general public.
0: This is fantastic because that's a great resource. So if you're listening to this and you're an athlete yourself, a coach, a parent, a friend, anybody who's around someone that you think might be struggling or needs to talk, um, those resources are are a great place. And then uh, the last thing I would ask is, what's the first step? So let's say you're listening to this and you think I probably need some help or someone I know probably needs some help. What would you tell them the first thing to do is?
3: Oh gosh, I think it's just talking to somebody. Say it out loud, say it to somebody you love, somebody you care about. Um, Just say that you're struggling and you need help. And then I think that there are incredible resources online. So again, it's do you call nine eight eight? Do you call um, or go onto our website and say I need to learn more about depression, anxiety? Some of the the national resources that are available. Um, I think that first step is even just saying that something may not be right. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean there's a mental illness. What it does mean is that something is out of the ordinary. Um, and that there might be some really incredible strategies to be able to get things back to baseline.
0: It's super helpful. Um, I might have to have you back sometime because I have so many more questions. I'm so fascinated by all of this, but I'm trying to get a bunch in this episode that will be resources that can really help people. So
3: thank you so much. And thanks for the work you're doing. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for having me on.
0: Just really amazing stuff from Jessica. And I think considering a baseline and moving from there, whether that's our physical or mental wellness or performance or mental health, is such a great way to think about the range among us all. Not judging, just acknowledging and working from all of our different baselines, checking with ourselves and others when we're below that. Um, you know, one group of people that suffered greatly from, from judgment along with stigmas and sort of antiquated ideas about balance and so much more are pregnant women and mothers. The United States currently one of just six countries in the world that lacks a federal paid leave policy. And that of course affects mothers who are athletes too. So to close out the episode, I talked to my former track teammate at Cornell, PhD stress physiologist, co-founder and executive director of and mother Molly Dickens. Um, so Ann Mother focuses on gender equality and working motherhood, working to break the barriers that limit a woman's choice to pursue and thrive in career and motherhood. Uh, they built on the momentum of a movement called Hashtag Dream Maternity that called for action and awareness around the lack of sponsor support for female athletes when they chose to become mothers during their athletic careers and – the first initiative that they have was very cool, uh, working with the brand Wazelle to publicly release some recommended contractual provisions for sponsored athletes that would support pregnancy, postpartum recovery, parental leave. You know, initial goal of the work of the public release to make it easily accessible, gold standard model for any athlete, or brand, or agent to use and change and, and work with that reflects the challenges and opportunities for how athletes return to competition and promote work, you know, on a healthy timeline during and after pregnancy. Um, So really cool. Now they're focusing also on mental health and mothers. Here's my conversation with Molly. And for reference, when she mentions Allison and Alicia, she's talking about Allison Felix, one of the greatest U.S. runners of all time, um, who spoke out about the lack of options afforded to new mothers in the U.S. after her daughter was born. And in a New York Times op-ed alleged that her then-sponsor Nike wanted to pay her 70% less after she had a child. And Alicia Montaigneau, who raced the 800 meters in the 2014 USATF Championships while she was eight months pregnant. You may have seen the clips. um, And then later broke her non-disclosure agreement with Nike to speak out against her former sponsor's lack of maternity coverage policies. That's who uh, Molly's referring to. Here's our convo. That's what she said. All right, before we get to the important stuff, I need to ask, as a former Division One pole vaulter, when <laughs> is the last time you attempted to pole vault?
2: Oh, dear Lord. Um, I coached when I was in grad school at Tufts. Nice. So I would, I think I only vaulted from like a four-step run, so a little bit, a little bit. I definitely like, I mean, if I attempted it now, I'd probably pull every ab muscle in my body. So yeah. You know, yeah. Dangerous. When i
0: watched people triple jump, I'm like, I think my leg would just turn into sand. Yeah. Just, all of the bones would disintegrate immediately. Gone we're so Yilded. old, man. I know we're so old. <laughs> um, you're old enough. I guess I'm old enough to be a mom too. I've just chosen not to be. But whenever I think about people being old enough to have children and raise them, I'm like, <laughs> I have, I, you know, the dogs are more than enough for me. But not only to be a mom, but have created this entire company that's really doing some powerful stuff. As I talked about in the intro, um, the contract that you worked with, um, and, and recreating and re- and understanding the need for new language in contracts for athletes was a massive and necessary thing, but let's go back to, to how you got into this work, um, who you are and, and your background in stress physiology. So this happened, uh, after I knew you at Cornell. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, um, my, after Cornell, I went on to get my PhD, um, with a focus in stress physiology, um, spent many years <laughs> in the world of science and research and did you know, two postdocs, went to Europe, came back to um, do a, a more research at Cal at Berkeley, um, and then jumped off the academic track to join a maternal health startup. So I was kind of deeply embedded in the space of maternal health, which really got me thinking about all the cross connections between stress physiology and maternal mental health And then jumped out of the startup and health tech space when one of my good friends, um, Alicia Montano, had her kind of moment of, um, yeah, so she's an Olympian. I can kind of introduce that because that's more of the origin story. But um, she had written an op-ed in New York Times about her experience with her sponsors when she was starting her family. Um, Her story was followed by Allison Felix's story. And yeah. so, you know, talking with Alicia and just the the impact that her story had on a broader level, you know, we really saw it was... She thought she was just kind of lifting the curtain on the marketing message mismatch between, you know, girls can do anything. And oh, by the way, but if you ever want to think about motherhood, like mm-hmm, you can't right. do anything else. That right. The old You're can that. you
0: have it all. Yes, exactly. No, you, over and we're, over and over we're and over just going to tell you, <laughs> yeah.
2: We're, you know, honestly, like the men in the room are going to tell you that you can't have it all. And we're going to make sure that you don't. Right. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it really reverberated across and it spoke to, you know, things that I had encountered in science and academia, in startups, in tech um and it just really showed that there was this this broader issue and this also this opportunity um sports is such a a strong pull for for cultural change that it was such a good lens to look at this and what's called the the motherhood penalty the maternal wall um that women face when it comes to navigating their career and whether or not they even want to start a family often it doesn't even matter <laughs> if they want to start a family or not the motherhood penalty is there in everything um and so we knew that you know we had this opportunity to take the momentum that she had um from her story from allison and allison felix is on our board um from both their stories and and you know the broader conversation of it and really move it forward and try to have an impact in this space and so yeah we were founded in uh the spring of twenty twenty, so that's a good time to start yeah, an great organization, time to start things. Great yeah, time. for sure. Um,
0: but in, uh, <laughs> in the end, potentially useful in terms of the work that you're doing, addressing physiological stress and mental health yeah. and other things. Mm-hmm. I, I want to quickly go back. So the motherhood penalty for those who have not heard of this term, sociologists sort of created this blanket term for how working mothers will encounter cultural disadvantages, biological disadvantages in pay, disadvantages mm-hmm. in perceived competence, mm-hmm. benefits, expectation of if you are planning to have a child, we might not elevate you on the off chance that when you do, then we have to rearrange you know upper levels of management, like all sorts of things that to your point, even if they don't want children, there might be a penalty Mm -hmm. headed their way just for being a woman that the possibility that they might one day get pregnant and that would affect their work, uh, which leads you back to and mother and when it Mm -hmm. was founded. So what exactly um, do you guys do? What exactly do we do? So, you know, we see ourselves as a
2: a social change nonprofit. So we're really looking at gender equity through the lens of motherhood related barriers um, with this focus on removing barriers uh, that allow full participation and success for mothers in sports um, to demonstrate a better supportive enabling path for all mothers across industries. And so taking this kind of high level umbrella view, you know, we can look at the broader issues and we're going to really start looking at sort of the broader landscape of all the barriers. But in the meantime, we're, we're picking off small barriers piece by piece. Right. And so, you know, with the contractual language, what that piece was, was it was a specific barrier that we've seen. We've talked to a lot of athletes who've, in fact, can counter the same thing. Clearly, this uh, this was part of Alicia and Allison's story. And, you know, as part of that project, it's um, it, this language just often does not exist at all in contracts. And so starting from that point with this long view, you know, because part of what we want to do is is create a sort of self-sustaining Change um, in this in this space, and so with the long view of contractual language, we want to see language like this standardized in contract. Right. No brainer, right? It's just there. For no men and women, by the it. way, for, me- for oh, men
0: and yes. women and anyone 100 percent Yes, um, and that's how we.
2: And that's really how we wrote the language. You know, we came from it. We we did the research. We talked to athletes. We talked to agents and managers. And you know, it came from. This was a Wazell sponsored project because they were like, we're we're rewriting we our language. Um, can you help us write the best kind of language and then let's make it public so that anyone can take it and use it. It's cut and paste. We did the work for you. We did the work for free. You don't have to pay. <laughs> you don't have to do it. And the language that we have, yeah, it's it's pregnancy and postpartum recovery, um, but it also is parental leave and that's completely gender neutral. That can apply to anyone um, to just really respect this period of time uh, that you need to, to come into parenting and In a a healthy way, even if you're a non birthing parent, you you have this time to come back into your own kind of health in this adjustment. And that can play into, you know, the later conversation of maternal health of, of just mental health in general.
0: Let's talk about some of the long held sort of stigmas that do come into play when someone talks about potential family planning, when athletes have to consider the effects it would have on their season, their team, their contracts, their sponsors. Uh, What are the sort of antiquated ways that we previously have thought about or dealt with this stuff?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think I could spend a whole hour just going through this (laughs) rabbit hole, but I'll try not to. Um, You know, I, I think the starting point is that there really is this self-perpetuating myth um, that motherhood is a career killer for athletes. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, it, I mean, it's breaking down to some degree because you have some examples now you have Serena, you have and you have Alex Morgan, um, but there's a, there's a long way to go. And I think, you know, part of this stems from the physicality of sports. There's, it's almost like a preemptive blaming of the female body and the expectation around how, um, women can or cannot perform athletically when they've had a baby or, or just mothers in general. Um,
0: or while currently
2: carrying one, of course. Or Serena. while currently carrying <laughs> while one. While playing exactly. for two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of it too. I mean, everyone is different. Some women won't be able to and some women can. And some women need four months to return postpartum. Some people need a year. I mean, it's it's you you have these, it, but it doesn't mean that their body will, will not be able to go through this to some degree. And I think that, what it shows up in is it's just, it gets embedded in the assumptions and the stereotypes and the bias that affect how other people make decisions for women um, in terms of contracts, in terms of team placement, in terms of, you know, how they respond when you announce pregnancy news, right? Um, and it, again, like it shows up before anyone even becomes a, a mother and it and it shows up whether or not you are the, the physical birth parent. Um, but, you know, the reality of it is that when you look closely at why women choose to delay parenthood or why women don't return if they do start a family, when you look closely, you can actually see that there's really, there's all these other barriers that no one's really talking about. That the women these people are dodging to get to this other side and be athlete mothers. I mean, the visual that comes to mind for me is like, you're you're putting them at the edge of this moat that's full of alligators and you're asking them to get to the other side and some are going to get there they're going to have fewer alligators in their moat or someone's going to help them build a bridge or something but you're going to lose so many women because right. they just choose not to jump in the first place you know so they do retire because that's what they assume they have to do um or they get eaten by an alligator you know like they get blocked before they even have a chance to demonstrate what they are capable of doing on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so the the myth, it's a false narrative. It's not the whole picture. Um, You have to zoom out and see the allocators and see that motherhood is only a career killer because the lack of support and the systemic barriers have really made it an impossible choice for so many women. And so, you know, once you, once you start looking at these issues and you fix them and you break the barriers and you build the, the structures, um, you will see more mothers in professional sports. And more importantly, um, you're, I believe, strongly believe, we believe as an organization that we'll start seeing career longevity and achievement that is not affected by the personal choices related to starting a
0: family. I want to move on to the mental health and stress, but out of curiosity, and as someone who has recently become a part owner of a team, so I'm thinking from the perspective of the man now, occasionally working very hard not to become quote unquote (laughs) the man, but you know, uh, engaging in meetings and thinking about contracts and all the other things. um, There is of course, in the Mm -hmm. same way that if you're signing a big time athlete who has hinted at retirement and there's guarantees and you're worried that, um, you might be paying them out beyond their abilities or their passion. There is a sense of what role do teams have in being allowed to be concerned about athletes missing an entire season because they've chosen to have a family? How do you acknowledge and address that and balance out the needs of both sides where you're running a business when someone is a professional Mm -hmm. athlete and their decision-making around family planning will have really serious consequences for the team that they're on or the sponsor that they've signed with. And now they won't Mm -hmm. be at the Olympics, which was the point of that contract. Mm -hmm. All of that. I know some of that came into play with the contract rewriting, but um, for those who would maybe think of this purely from a capitalist perspective, how do you balance the needs of both sides?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you have to first, kind of check in on your assumptions. Um and are you you know, which direction are you leaning on? Are you leaning on the assumption that because this person's starting their family, they're not going to return? Because that you're already starting on the wrong side of, right. of that assumption. And then I think, you know, really consider that there is value to having this individual on the other side and you know it's it's similar with with worker retention in any company you know is it is that year that you have you know if you were to cut them or dock pay and make it really hard for them to come back or not support you know their ability to come back either physically or mentally or or just you know in terms of helping with how they pay for childcare for example you know if there's if you're presenting the barriers is it because you don't, I, gosh, what's the right way to say this? The value of them for that one year that they might return, is that more important than the value of them staying on for five more years or 10 more years or, you know, whatever it would be. I think that, you know, we weigh, and you see this in companies too, with the arguments against paid leave. Um, you lean so heavily on this assumption that they're not going to return. And most of the time, that's not, that's not even correct. And then you weigh heavily on the, well, we can't, we can't go without a person in the spot for the next four months or six months or a year, whatever it is, you have this, this, yes, this capitalist (laughs) drive to say, we can't afford this. When in actuality, like, you, you can, I mean, you can figure it out and right. I mean, there's it's value it's, to having them it, on the other side and have them healthy.
0: It's intentional and not accidental, but yeah. there also are other situations that are accidental, like a grave injury that removes someone yeah. from your team and you yeah. adjust and you pivot. Exactly. Um, those are not the same situation, but it makes clear that those unexpected things, um, happen in sport. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the ways that mothers in particular are vulnerable to mental health struggles, either postpartum or once they're trying to balance uh, their lives as mothers and athletes.
2: Yeah, I think the the starting point here is really to acknowledge that um, mental health issues during and this is during pregnancy and after. So it's kind of this peripartum period. Um, they're really common. Um, one in five birthing parents will experience postpartum depression or anxiety um, up to 80% will experience some degree of mood disorder during or after pregnancy so it is common and it, and it should get to a point where it's it's expected in not in a negative way, but in a positive way of like, how do we prepare and care for this? Um, and, you know, from a physiologist perspective, just to get super nerdy for a second, um, the the brain and hormone changes during pregnancy and afterwards are, I mean, in many ways, they're they're more dramatic and extreme than even puberty. And there's this time when, you know, you're at this physiological extreme because your body is it's really prioritizing the growth of the tiny human and pushing that tiny human out of your body and recovering from that and adapting to life as a parent. I mean, you even see non birthing parents experience brain and hormone changes too. And so you see, you see postpartum depression in fathers and adopted parents. So uh, it's common and you're just more at risk for mental health struggles during this time. Um, And, you know, I think the, the frustrating flip side of this is that with, the coinciding of bringing a baby and often a healthy baby into the world, it can be even more stigmatized, stigmatized. So people don't often really want to talk about it. Um, But this is really where we need to kind of shift how we think about and well, one, appreciate what the body is going through um, and the brain and expect that there might be mental health challenges. And that's, that's okay. You just need to be prepared and have access to the right support and care during this time to, to stay healthy and return to a healthy point if you do um, encounter issues. Talk to me about where stress comes in. Yes. Um, This is where I could really nerd out, but again, I'm
0: going to (laughs) try to keep it Well, really quick, speaking of nerding out, (laughs) can you go back and just very quickly, when you talk about stress of physiology and what that means for you as a PhD, like what what you learned that the the rest of us folks have no ideas going on in our bodies when it comes to stress <laughs> and neurons and every part of yeah. our particle, literally particle of our body.
2: Yeah, just an yeah. overview. Oh, I realized that's a very dense. Question, every particle of our body. Span? I was an English
0: major, Molly. Okay, <laughs> so when you just toss around stress physiologists as if everyone knows what that means
2: well, physiology is the way that the body works. Um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, yes, I think, you know, that term at least. Um, so (laughs) the way that I think about, about stress is, is, you know, and the thing to, I guess the, the quick summary of it is our brains are able to essentially take in a psychological input. So something in our environment and it, it translates it into a physical and physiological output. And, you know, in the wild, like caveman days or in honestly, any any animal in the wild, um, you know, you think about the stress responses, there's a predator, I need to both escape and I need to survive my escaping of the predator. And the problem with humans is that we have the same response to, you know, I'm running late to work um, as we do to Oh, cool! Saber tiger's about to eat me, you know. Right. And it affects it affects every system in our body, uh, especially our brain. And so there's there are ties. Um, you know, there's a lot of research around the connections between the stress response and stress, um, all the stress pathways that are uh, activated in the brain, and how that affects uh, mental health when they're pushed too far. I mean, one. Uh, reaction to saber-tooth tiger in the wild is obviously not going to set up the caveman for um, depression. It's it's when you know our modern-day human is hitting the same response over and over and over again, and, and not shutting it off, and it's in this kind of chronic stress mode that it can have. Um, I mean, any range of stress-related illness, but mental health is mental health disorder is one of those in that category.
0: Okay. I'm fascinated by all of this. And I'm actually been <laughs> reading and talking about that whole thing of our current stresses, like our taxes. We yeah. don't give our bodies any noticeable physical recognition that the stress event is over, like crying, yeah. laughing, breathing, heavily <laughs> running. And so then we just carry it around with us. And then eventually when we get sick or otherwise, we don't understand why or we say, actually I'm so glad I didn't get sick till I was done. And it's like, no, you were sick the whole time. You, Your body okay. just finally had a chance to be like, oh, hey, we got to take care of some stuff. Now that that saber tooth Tax account is gone. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like, which is crazy that we yeah. just we're, we're just see, or seemingly for so many of us we're just learning about all of this stuff that's so critical to how we move about the world and, and carry on with our lives. Okay, so stresses where the stress comes in.
2: Yeah, yeah. So an, another sort of uh, visual, or maybe this is a, an analogy that'll help from an athlete perspective. But you know, correct me if it goes totally yeah. off the rails. Um, the way that I think about it too is that you know, it's, it's a weight stress is an added weight on the system. I mean, similar to what you said with like, with your taxes, we're just, we add on the weight, and then we just forget to take it off. Right. Um, and so if you think about it from, you know, with this analogy of you're just, say squatting with a weight bar, um, you have, you know, you have the bar, you have weight plates, and you have um, is it called a collar? How do you keep the weights on? Is that right? Something like oh, that. Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's
0: been a long time <laughs> When's the last time you well? squatted? It's been a long um, <laughs> time for me as well. Not with the kind of weights that require a collar, if that isn't yeah, what yeah. it's called. I'm like,
2: there's a thing that you put on to keep the weights on. <laughs> um, but I mean, during pregnancy, you know, this this visual, you have, you're have you adding on extra weights. You're really loading up the bar. And it's, it's more weight than you're used to. I um, mean, you can adapt to it and you can adjust. But the other thing with pregnancy is that you don't have this, this This is why I need this word collar or whatever it's going to be to keep the weights on. You don't <laughs> right. have that during pregnancy. You have this, this balancing act. So you're not only lifting more weights, but you're also balancing the weights on that bar. So you can kind of visualize how unstable that is. Um, and then with postpartum recovery, you know, it has this, this added thing of you just your physiology changes really quickly. Your hormone levels are changing really quickly. Your brain is adapting really quickly. And so you almost have weights coming on and off in a way that makes it even easier to tip the balance. And so you kind of have this extra risk of breaking or or tipping um, during this time of life and afterwards. And I think the important thing here is that with this visual, you know, everyone is different. And most people don't even know how much weight they're starting with. So it's impossible to really know when it might be too much. And so you might have some individuals who have no problem supporting or balancing the weight, like none at all, no issues. And then you're going to have some who are going to break just because of the weights related to pregnancy, or they're going to tip just because that postpartum period is super unbalanced. Um, And then you're going to have some who are going to be somewhere in between. And so for those, especially those individuals that are somewhere in between, it's the added weight that could break or tip them. And that's where I see stress. I see stress as this added weight um, that, you know, and, and I think the important the thing here is it doesn't matter if they're big weights, if they're heavy weights, or they're small, tiny weights. It all adds up just the same. And how they're taken off and put on like that, that has consequences too. So, you know, you can't. Necessarily control what happens and the weights that are added to the body to support the pregnancy and and you know as it returns naturally normally, but you can impact how those stress weights are added on, um and how someone is supported to not have those stress weights added on or to remove those stress weights from the system, um so I think this is the opportunity, um you know in, in sports and beyond sports to really make a statement about holistic mental health support to see stress as part of the equation of how this weight can can tip someone and and support those elements
0: um, it does feel fair. like the more we talk about it, the more we can name things and be intentional yeah. in our conversations, the easier it is for people to handle those weights, even if the weights mm-hmm. don't go away. Just yeah. being told, we know what they are, we see them, we see that you're dealing with them, and here's other people also carrying these weights. All of a sudden, it becomes something that you can manage versus That's- this unnamed thing that is just so overwhelming.
2: It's exactly that. I mean, I with stress, in and coming back to that, stress is a psychological input that's turned into a physical output um with that you know it, it has this this perception trigger right there you have to perceive something as stress to signal the body to physically respond to it and so if you can almost short-circuit that and so things that that cause stress in a broad categories you know across all stress research it's it's they've kind of categorized it to, to three things and my god can i answer all these three things but one of them is control <laughs> just feeling control over the situation um novelty and newness and you know there's there's those aspects that yeah having i things identified or having things controlled or having things supported or 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 buffered in a way um yeah it can have these bigger impacts that you might not even
0: consider as part of a, a mental health support journey. Okay. We're running out of time. So what are <laughs> a couple of examples that workplaces or people that are in the lives of these, these, you know, parents that are dealing with this can do to, to support?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think with the workplace, especially thinking about it from, from sports, you know, it's really coinciding with a window of time when you're also most, when you're most vulnerable to mental health challenges and you're most exposed to work related stress. So, that are related to pregnancy. So things like financial instability and job insecurity and discrimination. I mean, these are all stressors at the exact moment when you don't need more stress. So, you know, I think looking at things like barriers related to motherhood as the career killer. I mean, you can go back and we can name them and those are also stressors. So pregnancy discrimination, um, repercussions of missing work because, you know, the physical demands and not being able to compete, Um, lack of standardization and parental leave. So feeling like you're not protected and that you are going to be vulnerable for even asking for it. Um, Limited or no access to childcare that fits a schedule that's not a regular schedule. Um, And lack of supportive structures. I think the the big one is good for, um, this last one is big, Good for managers because thinking about the support structures that I'm almost think of them as like how can I do something X Y Z and if a person has to kind of figure out their own path if they have to find ways to navigate their breastfeeding journey without any support if they have to um, have this sort of added emotional labor you know those are all stressors I mean even something as simple as how does a manager react to a pregnancy announcement. If it's a super negative reaction, you can imagine that's a stress response. Like that is stressful. But if the reaction is, that's wonderful, let's figure it out together. Like that's the opposite, right? And so, you know, again, it's all these little things that add up um, and thinking about, you know, how to relate, um, you know, the the barriers to access and equity and how that relates to health and recovery and the ability to continue in a career while having a family. And it, it, it's all intertwined.
0: I'm fascinated by all of this. <laughs> I it's this is going to be that episode where I'm going to ask everybody that came on to come on again later and talk more about it. <laughs> um not just the the parenting and and but just athletes and and the handling of stress because we first have to get to the point where we really understand how much our lives um, are, how how much our mental lives and our physical lives are connected. Because very few of us really acknowledge the connection and how much is psychosomatic and and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And once we do that and we really can recognize that we're causing our illness or our stress stress or our physical reactions, you know, um, then we open up whole new ways to understand what we're going through and how to deal with it. Um, But this is a great start, and hopefully a lot of people uh, learned just from this, and we'll have to get you back to talk more about it. Uh, Thanks so much, Molly. We'd love to. Come back. All right. Lovely talking to you, Spain.
3: That's what she said.
0: Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for rants, raves, everything in between, something to read, something to listen, something to watch, whatever's on my mind what's on my mind this week is a couple of resources mentioned in this podcast for you, friends, family. Uh, Number one, as Jessica mentioned, all that great work they're putting into Olympic and Paralympic athletes is at your disposal as well. Teamusa.org slash mental health is where you can find it. Also, go ahead and find out if 988 is in your area or will be soon. Also, if you're an ally like me and you want to better understand the struggles of others, I recommend that Quirky comic that I mentioned. It really, for whatever reason, helped me get into the mind space of those struggling with depression. The site is hyperbole and a half blogspot.com. Hyperbole and a half And the specific post is Depression Part Two. So if you Google Hyperbole and a Half and Depression Part Two, it should come up. Um, you could start there. You can move on to more complex resources to help after that. Read Kate's book, What Made Maddie Run. Also read her other book, All the Colors Came Out. It's just gorgeous. Um, and just talk to each other and to experts. It's okay to not be okay. In fact, it is It is human. So you could always tweet me, at Sarah Spain. If you have guest suggestions, questions, or more, you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said to Sarah Spain. Rate it. Five stars, please. Leave me a nice message. Give me a good review. Uh, and thanks, as always, for lasting more than an hour with me.